بسم الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه كما يحب ربنا ويرضاه والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكمنان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما وفقا في الدين يا رب العالمين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته This is the February session for Ask the Imam and we have this session and the March session and then we have Ramadan going through April so before we start with these questions for tonight I wanted to get a little bit of housekeeping done and by that I mean addressing the manner in which the questions are sent in uh, these questions are sent in through the website and they're sent to me anonymously so when I get these emails I don't see the, the, the sender, I have no information about the sender, I have no way of replying to the sender directly, I can only reply to them in this class, in this venue. The only way I could reply to them directly is if they send me in, they mention their own email in the question itself. So I've been getting a few emails from people through the Ask the Imam email, which goes to my direct email asking personal questions or asking me to get in contact with them privately or to answer the question but not mention the relevant details stuff like that and this is just a reminder to everyone out there anyone who's sending the emails that if you want a personal correspondence a question that you don't want to be addressed in this program and you want to get in contact with me directly the easiest way is to email me at imam at mccgp.org. If you email anonymously and expect a response, you need to put your email in the actual text, in the actual message. So just to mention that and having gotten that out of the way, we can now go to the questions, inshallah. So question one, uh, another thing I forgot to mention, some of these questions are somewhat old because we have a running list of questions that we've collected that come through the email. And some of these questions are old that didn't get addressed earlier on. And there's various reasons for that. Sometimes it was because of the timing or the theme I was looking at addressing or some of them were just questions that I'm, I've been putting off. So some of these questions are old questions. Some of them are relatively new. We'll take what we can do and try to work through them to get to the most recent ones next month, inshallah. So this first question is, recently I was extremely sick with vomiting 16 to 18 times with severe weakness and almost needed to go to the ER. What should one pray while acutely ill asking for Allah's relief? My Islamic education is less than it should be though I am trying to learn more. All I could say is, Allah, please help me, in English, over and over again. The karima, meaning La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, Suratul Nas and Suratul Falaq. This is the question. So, before answering the question, we just make dua for whoever this is, asking Allah to heal them and give them well-being and relief and Hopefully they've recovered from this and uh, by Allah's permission, it was a means of purification. And to answer your question, what you said was very good because what you said was from the heart. So you can learn du'as for different occasions and we're encouraged to do that. We're encouraged to learn the du'as that we say when we get up in the morning, before we enter the restroom when we exit the restroom, when we put our clothes on, when we eat, when we drink, when we leave our house, when we get in our car. We're encouraged to learn these adhkar, and there's different books that collect these adhkar that come directly from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The most classic and respected book in that genre is Al-Adhkar min kalami Sayyid al-Abrar 
by Imam Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala and it's been translated into English as well. Other smaller works include Hasnul Muslim which is a smaller work that compiles a lot of these hadith narrations showing us different du'as for different situations including what to say when you're sick or when you're ailing or dealing with difficulties. So it's good to learn those things but let's say nothing that you've learned pertains to vomiting 16 to 18 times and almost going to the ER and feeling great uh, distress from that sickness. The best thing you can say is what comes from the heart. So if you're saying, as the questioner puts here, Allah, please help me in English over and over again, that's unquestionably from your heart. And one could argue that that is the best thing to say in that moment because it's coming from your heart. Because Allah Ta'ala is not waiting for you to say the dua in Arabic before that dua is answered. He's not waiting for you to say it a, a magical number of times before he answers it. You say it two times, three times, a hundred times. Allah has already answered you the first time you said it. But each time you're saying it, it's a means of imploring your Lord and pouring your heart out in need, which is what Allah loves and is pleased with. So I would say to the questioner that what you did was right. You said, oh Allah, please help me. You repeated the shahada, so you did use something in Arabic. And it's encouraged to say the shahada uh, over and over again. In fact, some of the ulama, would, their, their weird of the morning and the evening would be 12,000 times, La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah. It's a very powerful formula for anything you go through. This person says they would recite Surah Al-Nas and Surah Al-Falaq. That's also good. I would add to these things that if you're ever in distress like that, besides the du'as that come from your heart, you can send salawat upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa Ali or similar, similar formulas because the salat upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is tiryaqul mujarrab. It is the tried and true remedy for relieving one of distress of stress, anxiety, pain, and things of that nature. It is one of the most the quickest acting spiritual remedies and dhikrs one can do when they're facing stress. Uh, and make dua in any language that you speak because Allah understands all languages and Allah rewards you for your intention even if you just say Allah's name over and over again. Uh, in Arabic, one of the words for uh, pain or stress and anxiety is one of the, you know, we say ouch in English. In Arabic, it could be ah, uh, ah. Uh. And if a person is saying ah, uh, ah, uh, some of the ulama of tafsir have mentioned that the one who is saying that can be described as awah, because they say they turn to Allah Ta'ala just with the sounds of neediness, if it's coming from the heart. Because sometimes you're just, you're so uh, enveloped by the problems that you're just saying, ah, but in your heart, you're turning to Allah. So you have all of these means before you, and uh, may Allah uh, give you a recovery and make that a means of purification. Ameen. All right. The next question. Assalamu alaikum. How does one interact with someone who is transgender? You all know what that means, right? Okay. But the questioner made sure that I know what it means by putting something in parentheses. They were born the same gender as oneself. Asking in light of the rules of gender interaction, i.e. khalwa, meaning being alone, hanging out, physical touch, etc. So, without getting into the modern zeitgeist of gender confusion and the modern day rejection of objective truth and the impact those ideas have on these issues and without getting into the issue of social contagion that has resulted in a massive jump in the number of young people especially girls reporting to be transgender or other than the gender they were born into let us just limit ourselves here tonight 
to the specific legal questions put in this query. Now, I can give two answers here. I'm going to give the quick and easy answer, and then I'll give the more detailed answer to put some foundations to the first, to the easy answer. The quick and easy answer that you should know and be able to communicate to anyone who asks you is that if someone identifies as a transgender, they are treated in terms of Islamic gender interactions, they are treated according to the gender they were born into. It's as simple as that. So if the person was born a male, but they identify as a female, they are treated Islamically as a male in terms of the Islamic laws concerning gender interactions. So you don't, a woman would not be shaking hands with that person even if they present as a female. Um, a woman presenting as a man would not be, a, we would not, a man would not be shaking hands with her. We would not be intermingling. So whatever gender they were born, in, born into is the gender they are in terms of Islamic law with gender interactions. That's the quick and easy answer. The more detailed answer that is based on how we look at the complexity of human beings uh, involves looking at three different types of human beings that fall outside of the norm. Now, before we look at those three types, we just want to look at some of the things that the Prophet ﷺ has said concerning this matter. We have the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he curses المخلنثينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالْمُتَرَجِّلَاتِ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ He curses the effeminate men and the mannish women. So two, two words are used here. Al-Mukhannathina min al-Rijal and Al-Mutarajilati min al-Nisa. So Mutarajilat is from Rajul. Rajul is man. So it's women who act in an overtly mannish way and men who act in an overtly effeminate way. In another hadith recorded by Al-Imam Al-Tabarani, the Prophet ﷺ describes as cursed in this world one whom Allah has made a man and then he feminized himself and imitated women. And there's many hadith like this. Another narration, he says that there are three types of people who will never enter Jannah and one of them he includes Ar-Rajila minan nisa which means the mannish woman, the woman who purposely uh, acts in a masculine way. She presents in that way. In another hadith recorded by Al-Imam Ibn Abu Dawood in his Sunan, it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ had an encounter with a person, a kind of person we call a mukhannath. And we'll get to these terms after this. This mukhannath is the person who acts like a woman. And this person had dyed his hands and feet with henna in an in a effeminate way. And when he saw the limbs, the hands and feet of, of this person, the Prophet ﷺ asked others why he did this. And they responded, he imitates women. And afterwards, the Prophet ﷺ ruled that this individual be banished from Medina and settled in a town outside of the city. So this is a hadith in Abu Dawood. So what are we dealing with here? The more detailed answer involves looking at three different types of people who are outside of the uh, overwhelming norm of human beings in terms of uh, gender identity and how they act or how they look or present themselves. So we're using this word Khuntha uh, or Muhannath. These are the two words. Khuntha and then Muhannath. So both of these words come from Kha and then they come from Noon and Tha. Khuntha, Muhannath. 
The root Kha Nun Tha in the Arabic language gives the meanings of Takasur Wattathani, which means to be pliable, languid, or supple. So think of the the very feminine, frail, gentle, placid qualities within women, and that would be what we call, uh, or a person doing that would be a khuntha or muhannath. Right? So we have in the fiqh, what is the ruling on raqs? You know, dancing. What is the ruling in sharia on dancing? The madhahib differ on this question, but uh, Imam Suyuti and others, they talk about this, and they say that if it's a tribal kind of dance that is done by men, and the men doing it are doing it in such a way that there is no tathanni wa takassur, he uses those terms, meaning it's not done in a, in a feminine way, then it would be permissible, all things considered. So think of the tribal dances that people do, you know, with, uh, with swords or with sticks. It has no effeminate qualities to it. There's no takassur or tathanni, this uh, looseness and placidness that is a feminine trait. So in sharia, there are three types. The first one is the khuntha al-mushkil. The khuntha al-mushkil means the ambiguous khuntha. So you think khuntha, just think of someone effeminate. Right? That's the masculine form. For the woman, it would be mutarajila. So the khuntha mushkil will be the ambiguous khuntha. The second one is mukhannath khilqi, which is congenital khuntha, meaning it's some kind of uh, thing they were born with, but it's not ambiguous. And the third is mukhannath ghair khilqi, the non-congenital khuntha, meaning they weren't born with this, they affected it. They took on practices to imitate the opposite gender. They did it on purpose. It wasn't something they were born with necessarily. So which one are we talking about here? The transgender. Where does the transgender person, male or female, fall into within these three? Are they the ambiguous khuntha, the muhannath, khilqi, congenital? They're born with something? where they're just naturally by birth more effeminate as a male? Or is it ghair uh, khilqi? Is it something affected that they adopted purposely? Which, where does the transgender person fall in this, these categories? Most likely the third. I would argue all of them are in the third. Maybe a few in number two. But what are these three exactly? How do we distinguish? The first one, the 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 khuntha mushkil is called ambiguous because they are basically a hermaphrodite so they possess both male and female organs uh, or they possess neither and they urinate through whatever opening in the body they have so the hermaphrodite is 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 it a male or a female Uh, in the beginning it's going to be ambiguous when the child is born and it, and it has this defect and they're hermaphrodite, it is ambiguous at that time. That's why we say mushkil. Mushkil here means it's not clear. So the khuntha mushkil is the ambiguous khuntha. It's not known, is it a female or is it a male? And the fuqaha, the jurists of Islam, have a lot of discussion about how to ascertain the actual gender of the hermaphrodite. How do they determine it? The majority say it is determined by uh, whatever orifice they urinate from. So if this child that has both sex organs but urinates primarily through one, then that organ determines what gender it really is. So if this child has both organs yet urinates primarily through the penis, it would be a male. If it's from the vagina, the urethra, it would be a female. And that's how they determine it. Or they say, if it's not clear still, they look at other things. If that person ends up growing a beard and presenting facial hair like a man, or going in the opposite way, they don't have facial hair, but they start to grow breasts, 
and the voice is very feminine. So whatever other features point to the gender, that's how you would determine the gender. Once the gender is determined, then those gender rules in Islam would apply to that person. So if it's a female, then the other laws in Islam pertaining to females apply to that person. Now there are some ambiguities still here, and there are some nuances in caveats and fatawa about certain conditions. We don't want to get into all of that. The point is they were born and they were hermaphrodites and it's ambiguous, hence the term khuntha mushkil. Now, because they have both organs, it's ambiguous. And one of the genders has to be determined. So that presupposes that there is a gender binary in Islam. That we as Muslims believe that there is a gender binary that human beings are either going to be male or female. And the hermaphrodite is, although it appears as an exception, is not really an exception, it's just an ambiguity that has to be solved in some way. At some point, the ambiguity has to be solved and that person will either be deemed a male or a female because Islam affirms the gender binary. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala affirms it in the Qur'an, in the first verse of Surah An-Nisa, uh, and other verses. In the first verse of Surah An-Nisa, Allah addresses humanity, saying, Ya ayyuhannas, ittaqu rabbakum, O humanity, fear your Lord, alladhi khalaqakum min nafsin wahida, who created you from a single soul, wa khalaqa minha zawjaha, and created from it, that single soul, its mate, so Adam and Hawa. وَبَثَّ مِنْهُمَا And from the two of them spread رِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَنِسَا Spread forth from them many men and women. That's it. There's a binary. So this is the خُنْثَ Mushkil or the hermaphrodite. We're not dealing with that type. That's not the question. We're looking at number two and number three. The second one is called Mukhannath Khilqi. What's going on here linguistically? Khuntha and Mukhannath. Mukhannath is coming from Khuntha. But Mukhannath here means the person who takes on an ambiguous gender presentation. It becomes ambiguous through their actions. Right? So the mukhannath here, it's two types. It's congenital or non-congenital. What does that mean? The mukhannath that is congenital would be identifiably male. I mean, they have male sex organs. And if it's a female, we call that mutarajila. She has female sex organs. So this person is born and they're not a hermaphrodite. They're clearly male or clearly female in their sexual organs and how they present themselves physically. However, they have the mannerisms of the opposite gender. So think of in this spectrum, you have certain males who are very effeminate in the way they talk and in the way they walk and the way they carry themselves. And it's not so obvious that it's done on purpose, especially the voice. The voice may be very high-pitched and feminine from very early on, and it's not something they appear to be consciously uh, trying to adopt. So they present as males in this case, the Mukhannath Khilqi, but they take on the mannerisms of females, and it's outside of their reasonable control. That's the key issue here. It's outside of their reasonable control. When the Prophet ﷺ cursed the مُخَنَّثِينَ مِنَ rijal, the effeminate acting men, the, the men who act like women, he is cursing those who do it on purpose, not the people who have it congenitally. Al-Imam al-Nawi, rahimahullah, he comments on that hadith by saying that uh, if the person is effeminate by the khilqa, the way in which Allah created them, then they don't carry any blame or sin. So a man who is naturally effeminate and talks with a feminine voice, 
He's not doing it on purpose. He's not sinful for that because it's beyond his control. Al Imam al Shiribini, a great Shafi'i scholar, he says anyone who behaves with the affectations of women in his mannerisms and behavior, this is impermissible. But, he says, if that is his disposition, his khilqa, then there's no blame. If, it is, if it's just the way it is, there's no blame. Imam Ibn Battal, rahimahullah, he says that holding the mukhannath khilqi, this dispositional mukhannath, holding them responsible for the female affectations would be like holding a person blameworthy for the color of their skin or the shape of their body. They can't control it. So this is one way of looking at it because this is beyond their control. However, there are things beyond one's control and things within one's control. One is not responsible for the things beyond their control, but they are responsible for the things in their control. Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, he talks about the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ cursed the men who imitate women. And he says, the blame for imitating women in their speech and manner of walking is specifically for the one who does so deliberately. He says, as for the, the one who is like that from his disposition, min asli khilqatihi, then he should be ordered to do his utmost to leave his affectations in what he has been habituated to, gradu- to do gradually. So he's saying here, in his opinion, that even if a person is mukhannath khilqi and they talk in an effeminate way and walk in an in, in effeminate way as a man, though they're not blameworthy, they should be encouraged to uh, adopt different speech patterns in a different voice if possible and to walk in a different way they should be enjoined to change that gradually uh, but if it's just something they're born with of course no blame now a person may be speaking and in an effeminate way because of the way they were born that's not their choice but what they wear is their choice so if a person speaks like a female, does that mean they can go put on a dress and present like a female and put on hijab? No. Because just because there's this khilqa, this disposition, that's beyond their control. Doesn't mean they're allowed to adopt things that are within their control, that are impermissible in Islam. Now, there's a lot of detail here because... There is, in the Islamic tradition, one particular dispensation, one particular rukhsa uh, in this area. And that is, if the person is mukhannat khilqi, congenitally they are uh, effeminate as a man, and they have no sexual desire, and they have no real carnal knowledge of sexual matters, they're just effeminate congenitally in their behavior and they're not in that world. Just, and there's some people like that. There's some people like this. If they are like that, there is a rukhsa in Islam that this, person, that this person would be allowed to interact with and mingle with women. And that would not apply to someone who's like that, who has carnal knowledge who has, or who has had sexual intercourse or one who is like that but who intermingles with women and then describes those women to other men where does this dispensation come from it comes from a hadith about an individual who was a muslim his name was heat that was his name and he was a mukhannath khilqi he was a very effeminate man and he was not a homosexual he was just a very effeminate man who had no interest in men, no interest in women. He was dispositionally very effeminate in his manner of speaking, walking, and behaving. But he did not have this carnal knowledge. There was an immaturity to him. And there's a hadith about him. He had permission to sit in the private gatherings of women until 
one day he revealed the physical features of one of those women to a man from the Sahaba uh, when he was suggesting someone he might be able to marry. He was suggesting, I mean, the story is interesting <laughs> to say the least. The, this individual heat is describing to the Sahabi one of the women who was in a gathering he sat in, telling him, more or less, you, you, like, uh, you like voluptuous women, and this one is very voluptuous, basically. He's describing in a very intimate way, like the folds of skin and everything, in a very shameless manner. Well, when this reached the Prophet wasallam, he forbade heat from being in those gatherings ever again. And in one narration, it is mentioned that he was banished from Medina and sent to the outskirts to be away from the, the masses. That was a rukhsa. Now, he did not have sexual desire for women or men. He was not a homosexual. He was just a very effeminate man. But even doing this got him expelled from the, that company. So that dispensation only applies for a very, very small subset of people who don't have sexual desire in carnal knowledge. Now, uh, and there's commentaries on that hadith we won't go into. Um, so that's the congenital Mukhannath. So this person, again, we'll go back. The, the, the Khuntha Mushkil is a hermaphrodite. So they, there's an ambiguity from the beginning because they have both sex organs. And then at some point we have to determine what gender they are. The second one is the Mukhannath Khilqi. They are the congenital Mukhannath, meaning they present as a man. Their organs are intact and everything, but their voice, their gait, their manner of walking and talking and acting presents as a woman. They're very effeminate in their behavior, but it seems to be an inborn disposition, not something they consciously affect in their behavior. So we now come to the third category, which is the Mukhannath Ghayr Khilqi. The Mukhannath that is not congenital. Not congenital here means they choose to adopt those mannerisms. This is the man who was born as a, as a male, has male organs, everything is intact, and he willfully chooses to present as a woman in his manner of speaking, in his gait, his way of walking, in his body language, and in today's time, by willfully taking hormones to take on the features of women. This is a choice. It's not congenital, not something they were born with. It is something that they purposely take on. This category is the one who receives the curse of Allah because they do it on purpose. They change the creation of Allah. In Surah Al-An'am, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the words of shaitan, shaitan says that he will lead mankind astray and he will whisper to them and he will come to them from all sides and get them and they will change the creation of Allah. What is this changing of creation? Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, he says in his tafsir of this verse that changing the creation of Allah that shaitan says he's going to spread is, what's the word in English? Uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word right now. Basically, it's cutting off the private parts. Castration, that's the word, yeah. So castration. Castration. That's gender reassignment surgery, isn't it? You're right. Cutting off the organs. So that is from shaitan's game of getting creation, getting human beings to change the creation of Allah. This is the person who makes a choice to be this way. And it's long been recognized that people who do this do it in order to carry out immoral acts and to offer themselves as a passive partner to other men. Or they have a fetish where they fantasize what it feels like to be a woman and to experience intercourse as a woman. It's a man who 
has this fetish of wanting to feel what a woman may feel in intercourse. And this is a lot of what's driving that, these perversions. But this is all a choice. So that is the one that is blameworthy. So if we go back to the original question, which is gender interactions with transgender people, if that person is doing this as a choice, which is the case for the overwhelming majority, then they're born as a male, no matter what they do to their bodies to change the creation of Allah, no matter what choices they make to behave in an effeminate manner, they are still legally considered males in the eyes of the Sharia, which means that no matter how they dress and present themselves, they're still a male. That means there's no shaking of their hands for a woman shaking their hands. They're not praying next to women. They're not uh, alone with women and, and as a woman would be alone with other women and vice versa for females presenting as males. They're not going to be praying with the males. We're not shaking their hands and hanging out with them and uh, being alone with them as we would not be alone with a woman that presents as a woman. Now, the other category, the khilqi, the, if they present, if, if they are a male, but they are just more effeminate beyond their control, as Ibn Hajar said, they're to be encouraged to try to change those things over time, but they're still males. So they're treated as males, those, who are, those of them who are males, and those of them who are mannish females are treated as females. And the first category, the khuntha, well, the gender has to be determined, and that's, it's very rare, so that would be determined uh, in whatever way it could be determined. And then they're treated according to the gender that they are identified as. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. All right, next question. This is a very old question, and I just want to get it out of the way now, because I know I'll get it again if I don't answer it. It's a little, a little late. Uh, I was out of town when I could have answered this question. Um, it's actually more than one question. The questions were about wishing people Merry Christmas. Yeah. So I, I didn't even type the question. I just put a note here, address the Merry Christmas issue. Uh, and this is actually worth a, a, a longer lecture when we go into the legal aspects of this. But I'll give the simple answer, and that is, it is the unambiguous, it is the clear position shared among all four schools of Sunni jurisprudence, i.e. the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, of Imam Madik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad, and others for that matter. It is the unanimous position of these schools that it is unlawful, unlawful here meaning haram, la yajuz, unlawful, to congratulate non-believers for their specifically religious holidays. So when I say specifically religious holidays, that removes from the ruling holidays that do not have a specifically religious character to them. What's a, what's a holiday we have that is not explicitly religious in nature? Well, Halloween's a, that's a, that's kind of a, yeah. Thanksgiving is, yeah, that's probably the best example, Thanksgiving. Is, but isn't shukr a religious virtue? Gratitude is a religious virtue, true. But it does not come from Christianity, right? It doesn't have Christian origins, even though the people who started it were Christians. It's not a specifically religious holiday that is particular to Christianity as such. And one of the proofs for that is it's here and in Canada. It's not done in the Coptic Christians in Egypt aren't doing it. You know, the Eastern Orthodox aren't doing it. Uh, I mean... That argument is not airtight because there's other things they may not do that Christians do here. The point I'm making is things that are specifically non-religious in nature, thanksgiving, these one can 
congratulate or greet someone on by saying, you know, happy Thanksgiving, whatever. Uh, New Year's. What else? Columbus Day. Day. Yeah. Okay. Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, I guess. Uh, What else? Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Is that... It's a day off, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but you don't hear people happy MLK Day. Um, What else? Independence Day. So, I mean, Valentine's Day is a little iffy because the origins, the Christian origins, so that one's iffy. But Christmas, would we agree that that is a religious holiday? I don't don't care how secularized Christian, Christmas is as a holiday, how commercialized it is. That's all true. But it doesn't take away the fact that it has a very explicit religious origin and meaning behind it. Right? Well, someone may say, but, well, this is celebrating the, the birth of Christ. What's the problem with that? I mean, there's no problem if a person is happy with the birth of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Right? He was blessed. He's blessed, right? From the day he was born to the day he dies, when he's brought back up to life. But the point here is the religious undertones and it being specific to Christianity. We would not congratulate someone for the specific religious holidays by saying Merry Christmas because they have within their beliefs things that we would consider uh, shirk and kufr the the nature of Jesus Christ the incarnation the trinity all these things that are embedded within the Christian belief regarding Jesus Christ so for them it's not the birth of a prophet it's the birth of whom they who they deem the son of God you know the, the on the right hand side of God the father the son the Holy Spirit you know all these things are there implicit in the Christian belief. So you're not going to congratulate them on that by saying Merry Christmas. And I like to give an analogy here. You wouldn't go to someone who's a a member of the KKK and congratulate them on their cross-burning ceremony. You could say, well, I don't burn crosses. I I, I don't even agree with it. But hey, it's a happy time for them, so I'm going to congratulate them on that. Now, a person hears this analogy and they think, well, why would someone do that? That's horrible. Why would someone congratulate them for doing something horrible? And I would reply, the belief that Jesus Christ is divine is a far greater sin than the sin of bigotry against another human being. You have one sin, and then you have the greatest sin. So if you wouldn't congratulate someone for their racism, why would you congratulate someone for partaking in something that reaffirms a belief that is shirk billah, associating partners with Allah. Now the issue is people have counter replies and they say, you know, so what should we say? Or I'm just being nice. Or I'm just showing them that I wish them, you know, well in this season. I don't want to come across as a rude person or the Muslim Grinch and stuff like that. And the answer is, uh, you can greet them in other ways. You can say happy holidays because holidays are days off. It's a time off. I hope you have happy days off. Happy holidays. You're not explicitly congratulating them for their Christmas, but you're just saying, I wish you well in this period off. And yeah, that sounds a little politically correct. And just because we don't like all of the politically correct stuff doesn't mean that everything in it is bad. Principally, we would agree with this one thing and say, Yes, they want to banish Merry Christmas because they want to secularize everything. But that's one thing we can agree with that we wouldn't say or feel that people should be pressured to say. So just say happy holidays. You can be pleasant to other people and wish them well without sacrificing your principles, without violating what is basically the consensus of scholars that we do not congratulate non-believers for their specifically religious festivals. Would you get mad if a non-Muslim didn't say to you Eid Mubarak? 
So you go to work, no one says Eid Mubarak to you. Are you upset? Non-Muslims are not going to be upset with you if you as a Muslim don't go out of your way to say Merry Christmas. Trust me. I know my people. <laughs> you know, I know my people. No one cares. No one cares. And if they say to you at the checkout, Merry Christmas, don't feel you have to reciprocate and say the same thing. Just say, Happy Holidays. <laughs> you know, and it is what it is. Right? We don't sacrifice our principles in the name of being nice. Don't be so worried about offending people. You're being pleasant when you say happy holidays and you're maintaining your principles. And uh, this is a short answer. I think it's worth a, a more detailed research into the nature of festivals, what the fuqaha have said classically about the festivals, starting from the first instance in our history, how the Sahaba encountered the, the Nowruz and the Persian the spring equinox and how they handled that and some of the differences some, because there are some differences here and there in some of the finer points, but how they handled that, how they handled congratulating others for their festivals, Christians, uh, the, the books of fiqh that deal with the ahkam of, ahl, of, the ahkam of ahlul dhimma, the people who are non-Muslims paying jizya in the Muslim majority area uh, in lieu of military service. There's certain details governing Muslim interactions with non-Muslims in that space where we learn about these things. It's worth a deeper look, and maybe, inshallah, we get time, we'll do that in the future. Wallahu a'lam. All right, last question, and this is a relatively short answer. This person says, My wife and I are interested in writing a will. Could you address the topic and provide guidance on any specifics to consider? Uh, what's the word for will in Arabic? Anyone know? Wasiyah. The wasiyah. So the Prophet ﷺ has encouraged us to have wills. He has encouraged us to not let two nights go by without a will. Some of the Sahaba and the Salaf would keep the will under their pillow. And the wasiyah, or which we call the will, or legacy, or testament, it entails a few things. Now, we have to look at what a person should be doing what should they be attending to uh, before their death or at the time of their death? When the person dies, we have to make sure that the funeral expenses are paid for. We have to make sure that any debts owed by the deceased are paid. And we have to execute the wasiyah of the deceased and then Step four, we have to distribute their wealth that is written and executed according to the mirath. So there's a few things to do here. So number one, the person's funeral expenses have to be covered. So let's say they have a sum of money. Some of that money has to be used to pay for their funeral. The burial, this, that, the other. Then any of that, any debts that person may have left behind, the money will be taken to pay those debts. Then whatever is left over, a third of that and whatever is in the wasiyah is given as per the wasiyah. And then the rest is distributed according to the standards of mirath, the standards of a state division. So the wasiyah, according to the fuqaha, can be written or it can be verbal and it is executed after the funeral expenses are paid and after the debts are paid, after they're settled. That's the first thing. It doesn't have to be written, but it's advisable. It can be verbal as long as people are trustworthy and have probity and it's executed properly. If the person is going to put uh, bequeath assets in the will, it can be no more than one-third of their total assets. It can be no more than one-third. Why is that? Because the remaining two-thirds are to be divided according to the set standards of estate division in Islamic law, depending on the family breakdown and the surviving heirs. So that's a very specific way of division. It's not up to that person to decide who gets what from the two-thirds. 
that one third that is put in the wasiyah to go to this one and to that one, those recipients are going to be other than the people receiving the mirath, right? The only exception here is if some of them agree to forego, there's some wiggle room. But that one third would go to uh, relatives or friends or people who are not going to be contained within the recipients of the two thirds divided in the mirath. Hmm? By default. So a person cannot write a will saying, I bequeath all of my money to my favorite uncle. They can't do that. If they want to divide the money uh, and give one third to a charity, sure. If they wanted to go to this person or that person, fine. But after that one third has been bequeathed, the remaining two thirds cannot be given to this one and to that one freely and bequeathed, taking away from the rights of the inheritors, so the heirs. Now the question is asking about um, what it entails. Is there any specific wording to the wasiyah? There's no specific wording reported in, sh in the Sharia. The person just identifies who they are and what of their assets they're bequeathing and to whom and whatever other advice or legacy they want to leave behind. There's no specific wording to it. Uh, as long as it's clear that it is a wasiyah to be executed after their death, as long as that's clear. And lastly, if they are writing this wasiyah or testifying to this wasiyah, there should be two witnesses. The written one, it is said, doesn't have to have witnesses as long as the signature is clear. But in all of these cases, I believe it's advised to have witnesses physically present, whether it's verbal or written. I think written is better in this day and age so that there's no confusion about what the person is bequeathing. So what I would advise this person to do is to go to these websites. There's websites that have the wasiyah template. And you can look at the template and fill out the relevant information about yourself and what you're bequeathing. I don't know how these things work from state to state. That's what you're, you're going to have to do your own research. And even if you bypass all of that, you, you may still have a way of bequeathing and having it distributed if it's among your family. But if you want to be safe, I would say find out a way to do it so that it's recognized not only Islamically, but by the state you live in, as long as you're adhering to these rules, right? Because things differ between states and the way the state divides the estate through the probate court is different from how we do it Islamically. And from what I it would seem that you would need to do this for your mirath as well. Like you would have to treat your mirath as if it was a wasiyah just to bypass the state that would divide it in its own way. That's really beyond my scope. I don't know how that works, but one would have to find a way. And uh, we'll leave it at that. والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم